You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So go ahead and keep your eye on that uh, Mark passage. That's where we'll be spending our time tonight. Now, we pick up Mark's story really at a pretty climactic point. Uh, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry in Galilee where he spends the first half of Mark's gospel. And starting around Mark 8, verse 22, he starts to set his face toward Jerusalem, leaving Galilee and moving toward his eventual death. So all that said... This is the point in the Gospel of Mark where the intensity and the urgency really starts to ramp up. And to that end, Jesus, especially in this passage, starts to avoid the crowds and focus what he has to say on his disciples. There's not much time left in Jesus' life, and there aren't that many chapters left in Mark. So um, Jesus seems really to be pouring in to a narrow and focused group with the time that does remain. Uh, And that group is the disciples. So Jesus, in speaking to the 12, gives them what looks like two separate kind of self-contained nuggets of teaching. On the one hand, we've got verses 30 to 32, which are a little prediction about Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, The second one in Mark. And then from verses 33 to 37, we've got a little conversation about uh, rank, status, and prestige in the kingdom of God. Now, at least on my first glance, these passages don't really go hand in glove with one another. Um, But I think as we take a a deeper look at these eight verses together tonight, I think we'll see that they really dovetail together pretty nicely. All eight verses work together to show us a vivid little picture of the disciples' fear, right? They're They're afraid of Jesus in a very real sense, and they're also afraid of failure and Jesus's faithfulness, right? So we've got the disciples' fear and Jesus's faithfulness. So as we get ready to look at the text, I wonder if you would pray with me and for me real quick. Lord, open our ears and open our eyes to hear you and to see you. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your word and press your gospel upon our hearts and Send your Holy Spirit with us out of here to continue to preach your word to us in the coming week. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this passage, Mark 9, 30 to 37, has a lot of things that you would expect from a passage in the Gospels, right? Uh, We're playing the hits here. We've got Jesus making a uh, somewhat cryptic on the surface prediction or statement, right? And then we've got the disciples not understanding what's happening, okay? So that's pretty par for the course. And then uh, beyond that, we've got Jesus interacting with somebody who's pretty far down the social ladder, right? Sometimes it's a tax collector, sometimes it's a leper, sometimes it's a prostitute, but today it's a child. So all that to say, This is a pretty run-of-the-mill episode in the Gospels in a lot of ways. But um, in a lot of other ways, this is anything but. Because Jesus is on the way to his death. He's turned his face from Galilee to Jerusalem and has started heading to meet Pilate. For three years, give or take, 
Jesus has been with these 12 guys. They've eaten together, they've prayed together, they've worshiped together, they've rejoiced together, they've cried together, and they've traveled together. The ties that bind these 13 are really tight. Uh, And in a very real way, that season's about to come to an end. And what's more, it's been a great deal of their ministry in Galilee. It's kind of been HQ for Jesus and the disciples. Um, And now they're getting ready to start toward Jerusalem. And Mark makes what's almost a, a wistful comment in verse 30. All he says is, they went on, passed through Galilee, center their ministry for three years. And all they did was pass through. Didn't stop to see anybody, nothing like that. Finally, perhaps most surprisingly, Jesus avoids the crowds. This is new, right? No miraculous feeding of thousands of people. No taking himself out onto the lake in a boat so that he can teach to all the people on the shores. No, Uh, Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is focusing his time and his attention on the 12. You can almost feel the changes occurring in this passage. You can almost feel um, the climax turning in Mark's gospel here. It's not chaotic. It's not loud. But there is something abiding and, and just really impressing upon us that Jesus and the disciples are going through some changes, right? Some things remain the same. Other things are shifting. So it's probably not surprising then that the disciples react with fear when Jesus predicts his death for the second time in Mark's gospel. Verse 32 literally says, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him, right? But why? Why were the disciples afraid to ask him? It's actually the, the first time in Mark where Jesus says something the disciples don't understand and the disciples don't respond by asking him to elaborate. Every other time up to this point, when he said something they don't understand, the disciples have said, hold on a second, Jesus, we are uh, embarrassingly not quite tracking with you. Can you please restate the question? Um, So why, at this point, are the disciples scared? Why do they clam up? Why now are they afraid? We don't need to psychologize the disciples from afar to, I think, get at the answer here. There are a few possible explanations, some fit better than others. Could be they have an inkling or a little bit of understanding about what's coming, right? Jesus has predicted his death once, and they think he's probably getting close to doing that again. They don't understand it completely, but uh, they know that it's kind of a harrowing topic, so they don't want to really dive into that further. Could be the case, but... uh, I don't think that's what's happening here. We don't read. The disciples had an idea of what he was trying to say. Uh, They just couldn't bear it, though, so they didn't ask any further questions. What we read is they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Could also be they don't want to seem dumb in front of Jesus. Right? They're afraid to ask because they don't want to expose their ignorance. They're trying to save face. This makes a little more sense given the fact that the disciples are going to be comparing themselves to one another in a few verses, but it still doesn't explain the fact that they seem to have had literally like zero issue exposing their ignorance up to this point. The disciples, according to Mark, 
aren't scared to ask a specific question. It's not a subject that they don't want to press on, okay? They're scared to ask him. They're afraid to ask Jesus. It's the person that they're scared to approach, not a subject or a particular question. For some reason, who Jesus is, the picture that the disciples have of Jesus, the character traits that he exhibits, and the kind of person he is, has shifted for the disciples. Their vision of Christ has morphed from someone who is gentle and lowly, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, into someone who is impatient and easily frustrated. Now, I think it's at this point that I really start to see myself in the disciples. I can think of so many times in my own life uh, when for some reason, can't always put my finger on it, my understanding of the Lord Jesus has shifted in the same way. There have been times when maybe because of some sin in my life or just because of something I can't quite diagnose, we call it original sin in, in our bones, Jesus shifts from this loving older brother and savior that we see in the Bible to a harsh judge that is most certainly not who he is to those who believe in him. You know, one of the most vivid memories I have of my grade school years is of an assignment in Miss Wright's fourth grade class. Uh, when I was in elementary school, if you failed an assignment, you had to take the assignment home and get your parents to sign it right below the grade, right? Now, this is like on a day-to-day basis, like the worst thing that you can be doing in elementary school, right? The shame of having to take this assignment home and the school wanting your parents to be aware of your underperformance. Um, so not surprisingly, failed a test, project, whatever it was, and I took it home, showed it to my parents, asked them to sign it. My dad took me into my room, and uh, he wanted to chat with me about it. I was certain this guy was about to read me the riot act, okay, and express his disappointment in me, and all kind of stuff, right? So um, I don't do well with uncertainty, so I'm trying to go ahead and guess what the punishment is going to be. Like, Dad, do not make me sit through this conversation. Just go ahead and tell me right now. Like, am I going to be grounded? What's the deal? Are you going to punish me? He just kind of cocked his head to the side and said, why would I do that? I, you know, I thought he was pulling me aside into my own room to, to lay some consequence on me. But in reality... All he wanted to do was understand so that he could support me in the future, right? Was it football practice that was taking up too much time or um, did I spend too much time watching TV? Whatever the case was, somewhere along the way, my understanding of who my dad was, the kind of person he is, shifted. There's no reason, really, for that shift to take place, but it did. My dad is a wonderful, compassionate, loving guy, and uh, he started to look a lot harsher when I looked at him through a very fearful lens, when I let my fear of him stand in between myself and who he was. It was at that point that my perception, my dad's a harsh guy who was going to be disappointed in me, stopped corresponding with the reality, which is my dad's a compassionate, loving, wonderful guy. 
My dad never stopped being that man, but in my fear, that's who I saw him as. I wonder if there have been times in your life where you've looked at Jesus through lenses of fear that that cause you to see him as someone he's not. When you've sinned great sins, do you run to Christ for grace and mercy and forgiveness? Or do you, like Adam and Eve, hide from him in the shadow of your own fig leaves? Do you think, wow, I have really messed up. Let me flee to the Lord real quick. Or do you think, well, I really blew that one. Um, I'm going to read my Bible a few more times, help some old ladies across the street, and then I might have like cleaned myself up enough to approach the Lord and ask him for forgiveness. I might have earned his forgiveness at that point. In other words, I, I guess the question that this passage is impressing upon us is, do we fashion our own fig leaves to cover up our sin? Or do we allow Jesus to do that for us? Okay, so we like the disciples, at times at least, are afraid of Jesus. But like the disciples, we also fear failure. See, once this crew gets where they're headed, Jesus asks them a question. He asks the twelve, hey, what are you guys talking about back there on the road? Now, uh, this is what people in the Bible business call a gotcha question. Um, See, Jesus is God. He knows what they were talking about back there. This is not a surprise to him. But naturally, the disciples respond sheepishly, right? In fact, Mark says that they're silent because on the way up, they've been talking about who's the greatest among them. Now, this is super common in the Judaism of the day. Uh, Seating arrangements at feasts were important because they were foreshadowing the seating arrangement in heaven to come, right? What's happening temporarily is foreshadowing what happens later. You can even find rabbis 2,000, 3,000 years ago arguing about which kind of people will enter heaven first and will sit where at a heavenly table. Now, I want to be careful here because this is, I think, where we like to dunk on the disciples. This is a text that we read and think, man, these 12, they've been with Jesus for three years And they are still more concerned about which one of them is going to be on the cover of next month's Jerusalem Quarterly than they are about the Lord Jesus Christ who they are walking with. But here's the thing. You and I, we are no different than these disciples. Okay, We are constantly trying to avoid failure. And ultimately, that's what the disciples are doing. right? It looks like they're jockeying for the top spot. Really what they're doing is try to avoid the bottom 11, okay? We're constantly comparing ourselves like they are. Sometimes it's self-deprecating, right? You're looking at your Instagram explore page and you're thinking, man, I don't look like him or like her and I really should. Sometimes it's a little more arrogant. Sometimes you think, man, thank goodness I'm not like that person. Thank goodness I make more money than they do could be any number of things. Either way, though, see, the world hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. Sinful people, you and I, still walk around always trying to answer the same question the disciples were. Who is the greatest among us? It's terrifying, frankly, to think about that question and answer, not me. It's not me. That failure, that failure to occupy the top spot 
is terrifying, and it'll chase us all our days. See, you and I, we should see ourselves fully and squarely in the shoes of the disciples here. We're no different than they are. Even today, even in a day of air travel and wireless internet, we're still struggling with the same things. We go through seasons in our Christian lives where we are afraid of Jesus. We go through seasons in our lives where we are afraid of failure, whatever form that takes. So where do we go from here, right? This is a pretty bleak picture, right? Um, Does Jesus have anything for us, or is this where the story ends? Look at the text with me real quick. In verse 35, Mark tells us that Jesus sat down and brought the disciples over to himself. If you read this text, you can almost hear a, a relaxed and relieved exhale at this point from Mark, right? We're going through a lot of change. Urgency is ramping up. Intensity is developing. And here, Jesus sits down and says to the disciples, come here, right? A lot of things have changed. Some things have stayed the same. He tells them, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. And then he brings a child over and says that if you receive a child in his name, you receive Jesus and the Father, the one who sent him. But here's, here's the thing, though. You and I can only do this. We can only do the first will be last thing. We can only love the last like we're first. We can only receive these children. We can only fulfill these commands if Jesus has done it first and if Jesus has done it for us. See, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said rightly that Jesus has to be a gift before he's an example. Jesus must, must be a gift before he's an example. Before you and I can receive one of these children, before you and I can love the last like they're first, we must be received by Christ as a child. Before you and I can love the last as as if they were the first, we, the sinful, unworthy, blemished last, must allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus, the perfect, spotless first. Before you can even think about doing what Jesus commands here, you yourself have to approach him as a child and allow yourself to be received by him before you can be the disciples commanded to receive the least of these. You yourself, we ourselves, have to acknowledge that we are the least of these. And that's the case if you've been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, or if you're not one at all, right? Seasons of life Frequently, the Lord graciously is bringing us closer to himself by forcing us to acknowledge the soul rot that's in those back, dark tunnels of our hearts that we're discovering anew every day. Now, if you take these commands out of the context of a robust and lively relationship with the Lord Jesus, they will crush you. They will crush you and they will crush you because Jesus is the only one who can bear their burden. He's just prophesied his death at this point, right? The Son of God headed to die for sinners, for you and for me. He's the ultimate first who is perfectly and completely becoming the last for the last's sake. Nobody in this sanctuary can do that. Nobody on this planet can do that. That is a burden that will crush you if you try to live under it. 
The only thing that will remove these fears, this unhealthy fear of the Lord and fear of failure, is Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus lives and dies and rises again for you and for me from first to last. And he's faithful to complete that task set before him, right? Jesus' death is not the only part of the story. Everything Jesus does from the time he's born in that manger to the time he climbs up on that cross on Calvary, he is doing for you, okay? When he goes into the desert for 40 days, he's doing what Israel couldn't do during their 40 years in the wilderness. When he goes into the wilderness, he's doing what Adam couldn't do in a perfect and peaceful garden. And all of that he's doing for you so that on the cross he can take your sins and give you his righteousness, Right, the gospel is forgiveness of sins for sure. Hey, cheers and amen. But that's only half of the gospel. Right? Jesus living his life for you makes you fully righteous, not just a blank slate. In living, dying, and rising for us, all 33 years, and what he's doing in heaven now, Jesus physically takes our gaze off of ourselves off of our sinfulness that makes us afraid to approach him and off of the people that we compare ourselves to and he places it on himself. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is only one person on the judgment seat at the last day. Just one. It's not you. It's not that voice in your head that says you're not enough or that you're too messed up for Jesus to love you or that you've outsinned God's grace. It's not the person you compare yourself to. It's not the idolatrous vision that you had for yourself and who you'd be at this point in your life. And it's not that five-year plan that you knew you weren't going to make when you made it. Okay, None of those things are sitting on the judgment seat at the last day. There's only one person who's doing that, and it's the Lord Jesus. His judgment you're united to him by faith it's passed on you 2,000 years ago on that cross now the only banner that hangs over you is righteous child of God okay it doesn't say not good enough it doesn't say lacks potential right it doesn't say almost there but just not quite it says that you belong to the Lord There's only one thing that'll free you and me from these fears and that'll free us to love the last as if they were first. And that's the fact that you were the last. I was the last. And Jesus, Jesus, the first, loves us unconditionally. If you're united to him by faith, he will never cast you out. I want to close with some words from the great Puritan John Bunyan commenting on John 6.37, which is not our text today, but I think is salient to the point, where Jesus says, He that comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. I'm going to modernize it a little bit for you. You're welcome. But I'm a great sinner, say you. I will never, ever cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, say you. I will never, ever cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you, I will never, ever cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you, I will never, ever cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against light, say you, 
I will never ever cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I'll never ever cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I'll never ever cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections. We might say all fears. And it does, in fact, answer them. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.